Greetings, beloved. Welcome to another edition of Modern Day Truth Ministries. This is Jordan Thompson. I am so happy uh, to have you here again. I want to wish you and your family a happy and blessed Holy Week. Uh, I am grateful for each and every one of you, and I hope that even as our lives are drastically different and our respective cities are ultimately closed for business, for lack of a better term, we have taken this time to grow as family units as well as to grow spiritually closer in our relationship with God. This is probably going to be one of the most memorable Holy Weeks of each of our respective lives, both young and old, as we face a unprecedented set of circumstances. This message is message one in a two-part message series regarding the cross, Christ's death, and resurrection, a two-part series that we have going for Holy Week. What I have found is yesterday being Good Friday, Good Friday is a day that brings about reflection of the cross and of our own sin and our individual parts in Christ's suffering. What I have found is Good Friday is a day that many reflect, whether they are frequent churchgoers, seasonal churchgoers, someone that has drifted away from the church, and someone who has a curiosity about who is this Jesus. What I have found is Good Friday is the one thing that brings all these collective groups together and gets them thinking both internally and externally. Millions of people around the world, as I saw live tweets and Facebook posts and uh, Snapchat posts, a variety of things, many people sat down, both individually and with their families, to watch Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ. Those of us who have read the four Gospels and have read about the story of Jesus' death and resurrection understand the brutality of what took place. However, it is one thing to read about this brutality, but what I have found is the Passion gives us a visualization of possibly what Jesus went through. And I would like to paint this as clearly as I can as violent and as horrible and brutal as the passion of the Christ is, it is not even to the full extent of what Jesus went to, both physically, mentally, and spiritually, in his separation from the Father. However, what I have found is the passion of the Christ, in its entirety, in the brutality and everything, knowing the story of Jesus, is powerful enough with the visualization that we receive that grown men, no matter how tough, strong, or fearless they may seem, it is enough to bring even a grown man like myself to tears. The title of part one in this series is To Telestai, A Hero's Cry of Victory. As I was writing this message, I could not help but remember around the age of 15, back in 2005, Kirk Franklin had come out with an album simply entitled Hero. And one of the songs on that album also shared that name, Hero. It was a song that he had done with gospel artist Dorenda Clark Cole. And it is in this song that paints a picture that I want to open this message with today. And it begins with the words, the heavens were silent. 
The earth weeped in pain, the nations were troubling, and hope never came. A terror filled the air, and it wouldn't go away. We needed a hero to come and save the day. Famine and hunger, disease in the land, the hatred, the killing, taking lives from your hand. Creation waits through the darkness, we pray. Tell me, where is a hero to come and save the day through the nails through the thorns from the hill to the grave was a voice in the distance the lamb that was slain my soul had no song and my debt i couldn't pay when i needed a hero you came and saved the day to the homeless the widow the fatherless son to the sick and the broken alone with no one lift up your head your hope is on the way when we needed a hero you came and saved the day when the curtain had closed and it felt like then when your blood caught the fall and took away every sin. Even though men deny you're the only sacrifice that loved us enough. You loved us so much, Lord, that you gave your life. So you saved my life. Now I can see. I am no longer ashamed. Your power, I feel, see our lives have exchanged every wrong is erased. Jesus, you are my hero. You came and saved the day. And it is with that part of the song that I would like to begin this message. This was a day unlike any other. Jesus had been taken in the Garden of Gethsemane Judas had betrayed his master and and the Sanhedrin had sent out its soldiers to arrest Jesus of Nazareth. He had gone through multiple trials. His guilt had been determined. And it is to this point we will pick up. We remember that Jesus being put on trial and Pilate in, in navigating the difficulties of ruling the Judean province, one of the hot spots of the Roman Empire, gave the people a choice between Barabbas, a convicted, what we would deem in this day and age felon, and a man who had been without sin named Jesus of Nazareth. And it was the crowd who chanted, crucify him, may his blood be on us, and our children. We remember Christ's battered, broken body carrying the cross as the crowd jeers and mocks him as the brutality of the soldiers push him to Golgotha, the place of the skull. Those who know me best know that I have had a love for sports since I was a child, so forgive me for this analogy. Essentially, the clock is under a minute. Satan believes that his victory is imminent. There is no way that Jesus would truly give his life for a creation who has chosen to reject him. It all comes down to this, a woman who's gone through a pregnancy and the, be the baby begins to crown and the baby begins to come, it all comes down to this. The place was Golgotha, otherwise known as the place of the skull. 
Christ hangs on a cross between two thieves. The crowd is yelling, jeering, and mocking. Satan, as always, does his best to inflame the crowd even more. We know the story. One thief mocks Jesus. The other thief says, Lord, remember me. I know truly you are the son of God. And Jesus tells that thief, surely one day you shall join me in paradise. I would ask you to follow along with me. And if you would turn to John, the 19th chapter. Now, while all four gospels record the story of Jesus trial, death, and resurrection, I want to use John's account today found in John 19. Because it is in John's account where the word for today's title comes from, to Tetelestai. And I want to give a little background, so please look at verses 17 through 22. That is John the 19th chapter, verses 17 through 22. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew, Golgotha. Verse 18 reads, where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side, and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Therefore, the chief priests of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews. But he said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, What I have written, I have written. The Jewish religious hierarchy was offended by Pilate calling Jesus the king of the Jews, asking him to remove the sign from the cross, and Pilate, in his, what some would deem, I guess, ruling judgment, determined what I have written is what I have written. We see mention of the thieves on the cross, one on either side of Jesus, but the crowd did not care about those two men. They cared about Jesus of Nazareth, who was front and center on that day. And I want to look at verses 23 and 24 now. That is John, the 19th chapter, verses 23 and 24. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts, to each soldier a part, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top, in one piece. Verse 24, they said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose shall it be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these Things. It is within these two verses in the story of Jesus' death that we see another messianic promise, a messianic prophecy come to fulfillment. It was prophesied. They would cast lots for the clothes of the Messiah. And John, in his account of the gospel, references this prophecy found in Psalms, the 22nd chapter, verse 18. 
However, David, the great King David, whom it was prophesied that the Messiah would come from his line, prophesies this very scene that we read here in John 19. And he he does this in Psalms, the 22nd chapter, verse 16. For the dogs have compassed me. The assembly of the wicked have enclosed me. They have pierced my hands and feet. They parted my remnant among them. And for my vestiture, they did cast lots. The wicked have encompassed and enclosed around Jesus. They have cast lots for his clothes and for his vestiture. Hundreds of years before the event, David prophesies this very thing. The situation seems hopeless. Christ's body is battered and broken. The weight of sin is upon him. Separation from the Father, something he has never felt in his life, has encompassed and engulfed in this moment. It all comes down to this. Back to my analogy. The clock is down to 30 seconds, down by two. Tying isn't enough. A three is needed to win the game. In verses 25 through 27, we see Jesus speaking to John and Mary, telling them now they are now mother and son. Jesus is doing these final things in his final moments. It is all coming down to this. The clock is ticking. Humanity's fate hangs in the balance. The dogs are circling. Satan, as we know from the book of Job, is roaming the earth to and fro. And I can assure you on this day, in this moment, he is pacing back and forth because he knows it all comes down to this. He has incited the crowd to dare Christ to come down from the cross because he knows that if Christ stays up there, if he goes through with this, it will be over. And if we look at verses 28 through 30, this is John the 19th chapter, verses 28 and 30. This is the basis of where today's message comes from in the title that comes with it. These are some of the most famous words ever spoken, and during Holy Week, we see these words posted and spoken about over and over again. After Jesus, knowing all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. And verse 29 reads, now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine and put it put it on his up and put it to his mouth. And verse 30 reads, and this is where the crescendo begins to happen. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. Bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. Jesus uttered the words, it is finished, and in that moment he gave up his spirit, the Lord and Savior of the world had died. However, the impact of these words cannot be described enough relying on the English translation. 
No, the words that Jesus spoke in Greek, which is what John 19 was written in, the Greek of John 19 uses a word. Teletlestai. This is the perfect tense of the Greek word, teleo. It is paramount to understand why John uses the word teletlestai in Greek, why he uses the perfect tense. John does a lot of things in Greek for a divine purpose, starting with John chapter 1 up until this point in John 19. What is the perfect of what is the perfect purpose of the perfect tense? The word itself translates to it is finished, but by using the perfect tense, John is making an emphatic point, a very emphatic theological point. It was finished in the past, it was finished in the present, and it is finished in the future. This is all-encompassing, this is long-lasting, and cannot be overturned. The words, it is finished, without this understanding, seems like a cry of despair. But now, by understanding the Greek, we understand that this was a hero's cry of victory. It was the sound of Satan's resounding defeat. Teletlestai is an accounting term meaning paid in full. Jesus is saying it is finished, that the debt owed by man to his creator on the account of Adam's sin is finally and forever dealt with. Jesus, with it is finished, is saying not only does he take away man's sin now, he removes it as far as the east is from the west, for is finished, done, signed, and sealed because of the blood of Jesus. Before the arrest of Jesus by the Romans, Jesus prayed his last public prayer, where he asked the Father to glorify him even as he has glorified the Father. He prayed to finish the work you have given me to do, John 17, 4. The work of Jesus is to seek and save that which is lost, Luke 19, 10, and to provide atonement for sinners whom Jesus died to reconcile them to God, Romans chapter 3, verses 23 and 25, as well as 2 Corinthians 5, 18 and 19, both beautifully illustrate that point. None but the Lord could accomplish and say with the authority of the God of man, it is finished. Teletlestai. When Jesus said to Teletlestai, it is finished, he brought about the completion of all the Old Testament prophecies, all the symbols and foreshadowing about himself from the beginning of Genesis to the end of Malachi. There are over 300 detailed prophecies about the anointed one, Jesus, which are fulfilled by him. For the seed who would crush the serpent's head, Genesis 3, 5, the suffering servant, Isaiah 53, even the prediction of the messenger of the Lord was filled by John the Baptist, who would prepare the way for Jesus. All these prophecies were fulfilled and finished in the life, ministry, and death of the Lord Jesus. Christ. 
Jesus uttered the words, it is finished. And the bulk of today's message comes from John, but it is of paramount importance, this next part of the story of the death of Jesus that I want to talk about. Three of the four Gospels, three of the four, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, give us something tangible to illustrate why this is a victory cry from our Lord. You see, in the temple stood a veil, and it was not just any veil. It was the veil that separated the holy place from the most holy place, otherwise known as the holies of holies. The place where the Ark of the Covenant sat, where God himself was supposed to be, where sacrifices once a year during the Day of Atonement were presented to Yahweh Elohim. The veil's primary function was to separate the holy place from the holies of holies. We find this in Exodus 26, 33. This is the, the separation is at the heart of the entire priestly code for the sacrificial system, found in Leviticus chapter 11, verses 1 through 45, to separate between the unclean and the clean. Likewise, in Ezekiel's vision of the temple, there is to be separation of the holy and the profane, found in Ezekiel. 4240 or Ezekiel 2226 or Ezekiel 44 verse 23. The veil then was a physical barrier that both represented and enforced separation from the holy presence of the enthroned Yahweh within from Aaron and his sons. The violation of such code brought death. Romans 6.23, for the wages of sin is death. This veil existed for the sole purpose of separating us from God because we had sin. And by violating, entering into the Holy of Holies outside of the Day of Atonement, in which only the high priest was allowed to bring sacrifice for the remission of sin, we were to be put to death. The exception for entering the Holy of Holies was made only in context of that Day of Atonement. Leviticus 16, 11 through 28, when the high priest would take the offering behind the veil as a sin or purification offering, Leviticus 16, 11. Here the blood was taken into the holies of holies and sprinkled on the atonement slate of the ark, Leviticus 16, 14. On the day of atonement, Aaron was to use the blood of the sin offering to purify and consecrate the altar, Leviticus 16, 19. Yet the man entering must be a high priest and may not enter whenever he chooses, says the Lord. For I will appear in the cloud over the atonement cover, Leviticus 16, 2, Numbers 7, 89. Without the high priest, no one could go before God. Now that we understand the background, we can better understand God's divine message to the people by this divine event. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, after Jesus utters the words, it is finished, talk about the earth shaking and the veil in the holies of holies tearing from one end to the other. This wasn't just a simple curtain or veil or piece of linen. This, 
This veil was so heavy that it took multiple men to carry as well as to assemble it in the temple. This was not just something that out of happenstance could have tore. No, this is the hand of God at work. This is the power of Jesus' name at work. And this is a visual representation of what the death of Christ represented. And you see, this is why Paul speaks of the veil in reference to reconciliation with the Father. Matthew 27, 51 through 53 reads, Then behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth quaked and the rocks were split. And verse 52 reads, And the graves were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised, and coming out of the graves after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. A divine event has taken place. Not only does Jesus say it is finished, the mission is complete, and give up his spirit and die, but we find that the earth shakes, the veil is torn, and the, and, and the saints who had gone to sleep are resurrected. God is giving us a message that though Jesus died, we can live Again, for the wages of sin is death, but the death and the blood of Jesus is at work to let us die. It is at work yesterday, today, and forever. After Christ cries out in victory, Teletlestai, the earth shakes in a way that it had never shaken before and may never shake again in some people's eyes. The veil was no longer needed. A barrier between God and man was no more because there was now a mediator. There was now the high priest, King Jesus, who was able to go to the Father on our behalf. The ultimate sacrifice had been paid by Yeshua HaMashiach, Jesus the Messiah. Matthew's context, the earthquake indicates a dramatic manifestation of God at a climatic event in his redemptive and historic plan. So violent that the earth shook. Matthew adds that the rocks were split, demonstrating the power of God. This is also reminding us of the prophecy in Zechariah, upon which Christ when he will return, his feet will touch the ground, and in the power of God being so great, he will split the Mount of Olives in two. The Bible says that in the last days, God will pour out his spirit among the people, that your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. God is going to loosen the latter rain because the latter rain shall be greater than the former or the first. While we are in an unparalleled time during this COVID-19 crisis, the story of Jesus' death and resurrection should hold a special meaning. I truly believe that we are living in that time of the latter rain. Teletlestai is more than just simply, it is finished. It is a reminder that Jesus is breaking the yokes of that generation. He is breaking the yokes of the generations after, and he is breaking the yokes of the generations of today. He is he, he is freeing our children, our families, and our friends. We have all been set 
free by the blood of Jesus Christ. Teletlestai, the power of God is here and the power of Jesus' name is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The Bible says in Acts 4.12 that there is no other name on heaven or on earth that we might be saved. No other name but Jesus Christ of Nazareth. The Bible says that he rose so that we might rise with him. And that we might be delivered. Jesus is coming again and it ain't long before the church shall be caught up with him. And I want to look at the last part of John 19 because it speaks to this coming of Jesus. It speaks to his imminent return. John isn't through prophesying when it comes to Jesus. I spoke about this during my last message uh, when I spoke of the coming of Christ. And I want to revisit it for those who have not heard that message. And this is found in John chapter 19 and is the last part of John 19. It's verses 31 through 38. That is John the 19th chapter, verses 31 through 38. Therefore, because it was the preparation day, that the bodies should not remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for that Sabbath was a high day. You have to remember that not only was Sabbath approaching, but this was the week of Passover. So it was a high Sabbath, a special Sabbath. The Jews asked Pilate that their legs might be broken, that they might be taken away. Then the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first and of the other who was crucified with him. But when they came to Jesus and saw that he was already dead, they did not break his legs. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and immediately blood and water came out. And he who had seen has testified, and his testimony is true. And he knows that he is telling the truth so that you may believe. For these things were done that the scripture should be fulfilled. Not one of his bones shall be broken. And again, the scripture says, they shall look on him whom they've pierced. Jesus was not supposed to die as quickly as he did. The reason why the Romans loved crucifixion the way that they did was because it was a slow, painful, and torturous death. And we get that at the beginning of verse 31 when it says they broke the legs of the other two thieves, one on each side of him. And they broke the legs because part of being on the cross, the way that you continued to breathe was using your legs to push up. By breaking the legs, you ensure that essentially those two men would suffocate in the most torturous of ways. You see, the Bible says that not one bone was broken thus fulfilling the prophecy of the Old Testament, one of the 300 prophecies fulfilled by Christ's birth, death, and resurrection. And they pierced him, fulfilling the other. He was mortally wounded, yet rose again. Verse 37 is a prophecy coming from the prophet Zechariah in which John is referencing. Zechariah 12.10 prophesies the nation of Israel will look upon him for whom they pierced and they will believe. John references this prophecy in verse 37. Revelation references these both 
prophecies of Zechariah 12.10 and John 19.37. Revelation 1.7 reads, Behold, he is coming with the clouds, and every eye will see him, even they who pierced him, and all the tribes on the earth will mourn because of him. Even so, amen. Friends, the Bible says that God still loved the world, that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever believes in him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Let these holy days be a reminder. While the work of Christ is finished, we are also assured of his return. The Bible says there will come a day where this earth will burn, and it will burn with a fervent heat. But the church will be caught up away to be with the Lord. This is a promise of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. I ask you during this time of the latter rain, during the time of these holy days, if you have not committed your life to Christ, do so today. If I was at a pulpit, this would be the point in my message where I would call you up to the front for an altar call. But just know, even though we are not in the church house, it does not matter where you are at this point in your life. You can still come to Jesus in that same way at the cross. When we meet Jesus at the cross, our life will never be the same again. It is not too late. Even if you have found yourself at a point where you've committed your life to Christ, but you find that you're not quite living the way you should, it is not too late. Jesus will meet you where you are. Even those of us who have gone through things in life, but through our own choices, through our own trials, have walked away, just like the story of the prodigal son. But just like him, we can return, and we shall be celebrated if we do. Just like the father in that story celebrates the return of his other son. The angels of the Lord will rejoice, my friend. Jesus died so that we might live. If Jesus is willing to die for us, we should be willing to live for him. Until we meet again, God bless you, my friends, and stay safe.